Now then, Dimitri, you know how we've always talked about the possibility of something going wrong with the bomb. The bomb, Dimitri. The hydrogen bomb. Well, now, what happened is um, one of our base commanders, he had a sort of, well, he went a little funny in the head. You know, just a little funny. And uh, he went and did a silly thing. Well, I'll tell you what he did. He ordered his planes to attack your country. Uh, well, let me finish, Dimitri. Let me finish, Dimitri. Well, listen, how do you think I feel about it? Can you imagine how I feel about it, Dimitri? Why do you think I'm calling you? Just to say hello? Of course I like to speak to you. Of course I like to say hello. Not now, but any time, Dimitri. I'm just calling up to tell you something terrible has happened. It's a friendly call. Of course it's a friendly call. Listen, if it wasn't friendly, you probably wouldn't have even got it. Welcome. To two old farts talk sci-fi. I'm David Clank. And I'm Troy Harkin. And this is our Doctor Strange Love episode. We do have a special guest for this episode. Ira Naiman is joining us. And we lovingly refer to him as the third fart. And I couldn't be happier. Ira <laughs> Ira was our special guest for our Season 1, Episode 5 podcast on The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and our Season 2, Episode 11 podcast on The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, and our Season 3, Episode 3 podcast on Mystery Men, and our Season 4, Episode 7 podcast on Twiddle Twaddle. And with tonight's appearance, he is the only guest to have appeared in all five seasons of the show. Woo! I sounded like one of those math questions, by the way. Ira Naiman appears on a podcast. If he is on episode one of season four and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, go ahead. Well, he was leaving Chicago at 100 yeah. miles an hour. Yeah. No, sorry. But uh, he is the uh, second guest to join the Farty Five or the Fart Timers Club. The first was Bev Vincent, who joined us for episodes on The Dead Zone and On Writing, and then a three-parter celebrating his book on Stephen King last season. So he's the second person to have appeared in five separate episodes. But Ira, you're the only one who's appeared in every season. So can, Ira, congratulations. And Troy, do we have a jacket or some kind of memento or something well, I, to give to Ira? I do believe we have an extra large gold-plated bottle of Imodium for our guest of honor. I will treasure it. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. So whenever, you know, you're in uh, GI distress, just lean on that. Um, now, when it comes to a spoiler alert, 
like we we tend to do this, but it is a 1964 film. Do we even do spoiler alerts for films that are over 50 years old? Uh, I guess we we need to if we're if we uh, you know if we do one, we should do them all. So all right, Troy, you will you it? be so kind as okay. to give us a spoiler alert? All right, Dimitri, I will push the button now. This is a test. This station is conducting a test of the emergency broadcast system. This is only a test. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. If this had been an actual emergency, the attention signal you just heard would have been followed by official information, news, or instructions. There we go. All righty. Thanks, Troy. We are recording this session via Zoom in the interest of transparency. Troy and I have known Ira for five seasons. Oh, and of course, before that, here's a little bit about our guest. Ira Naiman writes humor under the name Ira Naiman. His writing features a heavy dose of satire. The Ugly Truth, his eighth novel with Elswin Press, was published in June 2022. His two-dozenth published short story, Girls Rule the Steampunk World appeared in Brave New Girls, Chronicles of Misses and Machines. In September 2022, Ira celebrated the 20th anniversary of the weekly publication of Les Pages au Fall, his website of political and social satire. I'm not sure if I butchered that name, Ira. Damn close. You were good. Yeah. I tried. Almost good. That's so anyways, welcome, welcome, Ira. <laughs> it's great to be here. <laughs> great to be back. <laughs> um, so one of the things I like to say is that Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi is a look back to when we fell in love with the speculative genre to recall these times with fondness and affection. And I think a review by Roger Ebert uh, posted um, October 28th, 1994, about 30 years after the film came out, may have said it best when he said, Seen after 30 years, Dr. Strangelove seems remarkably fresh and undated, a clear-eyed, irreverent, dangerous satire, and its willingness to follow the situation to its logical conclusion, nuclear annihilation, has a purity that today's lily-livered happy-ending technicians would probably find its way around. Its black-and-white photography helps, too, putting an unadorned face on its deadly political paradoxes. If movies of this irreverence, intelligence, and savagery were still being made, the world would seem a younger place. On to Dr. Strangelove. Troy, do you have some background on the movie we're looking at? I do have a little here. I figure we will uh, you know, save a lot of room for our actual discussion, but here we have it, some background on... Dr. Strangelove. Dr. Strangelove was Kubrick's seventh film, released between Lolita in 1962 and 2001 A Space Odyssey in 1968. As Cold War tensions grew following the Cuban Missile Crisis, Kubrick became obsessed with the possibility of nuclear annihilation. Originally, he looked into developing a serious film on the topic. That took him to the novel Red Alert by Peter George. But the more he examined the absurdity of the topic, the more Kubrick realized that developing the material as a black comedy was the only way to go. 
As a result, Terry Southern was brought on board to help write the script for Dr. Strangelove. The film was originally slated to open on Thursday, November 22nd, 1963, but because of the assassination of President Kennedy on that day, the film's premiere was pushed back to January of 1964. Now, I have two interesting little synopsises for you. Uh, one is from uh, a book I like to go to often just for a laugh, which is the Hollywell's Film Guide of around 1980 or so. And so this is the first one. It says, a mad USAF general launches a nuclear attack on Russia. And when recall attempts fail and retaliation is inevitable, all concerned sit back to await destruction of the world. Black comedy resolving itself into a series of sketches with the star playing three parts, in parentheses, for no good reason, uh, the U.S. president, an RAF captain, and a mad German-American scientist. Historically, an important film in its timing, its nightmares being those of the early 60s. Artistically, it clogs its imperishable moments by untidy, by an untidy narrative and unattractively contrasty photography, which seems a little harsh to me, uh, especially given the fact that this was not uh, you know, a, a review of, of of the time. Certainly enough time had passed that uh, the film was held in pretty high esteem. Now, so that's from, uh, again, Hollywell's Film Guide from uh, circa 1980. Now I'm going to go to a thousand and one movies you must see before you die for just a, a little snippet of, of what they say. Dr. Strangelove, is a brilliant black comedy that works as political satire, suspense farce, and cautionary tale of technology running away with us. Uh, Kubrick would return to the potential menace of computer dependency in 2001, to institutional and political violence in A Clockwork Orange, and to the savage surreal madness of war in Full Metal Jacket. But he never made us laugh this much in any other film. And so again, considered but now, certainly, as one of the 1001 uh, movies you must see. And I know it was also uh, listed, I believe, in the top 20 or so comedies of all time. Uh, Dr. Strangelove was nominated for four Academy Awards in 1964 and is widely regarded as one of the best comedies ever. It won the Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation. The film also opened the door for other satirical films about the military. Soon after Strangelove's release, we get the films The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming by Norman Jewison, How I Won the War by Richard Lester, Catch-22 by Mike Nichols, and MASH by Robert Altman. The film was made for $1.8 million and made $9.2 million at the box office. In virtually every metric, the film was a success. Miraculously, 60 years later, we have survived the doomsday machine, and we're here today to discuss Dr. Strangelove or how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. I have long compared Dr. Strangelove to another movie that came out in the same year, about eight months later, called Failsafe. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but Failsafe and Dr. Strangelove have almost exactly the same plots. Um, bomber, American bomber uh, planes are sent to Russia, um, and there is a lot of tension over whether, in fact, they will uh, drop their bombs somewhere in Russia and start a, a nuclear war. 
Um, and I often have used the comparison of these two movies to actually talk about the nature of comedy because a lot of people think comedy uh, evolves out of plot, but here you have exactly the same plot. One film is a comedy and the other is a drama. And um, to me, what it, what I always use that as a case study in is how comedy actually arises from your approach to the story and not the story itself. Um, but when I was researching this, I discovered a lot of fascinating um, interactions between the two movies that I, I didn't realize before. Kubrick, when he was making Dr. Strangelove and he first heard that Failsafe uh, was also being produced, got his studio, Columbia Pictures, to sue the independent studio that was making um, uh, Failsafe. And oddly enough, um, the reason for the lawsuit was that he claimed that the novel Failsafe, on which the movie Failsafe was based, was a plagiarism of Red Alert was a plagiarized novel of Red Alert. Right. And they actually won that case, um, oddly enough, but it didn't affect the movie schedule. So what Kubrick did was he went to Columbia and he basically got Columbia to buy out Failsafe. And Columbia sat on the film for eight months. It wouldn't allow it to be released so that um, Dr. Strangelove could um, have the field to itself. Um, and I think it's unfortunate. Like the thing about Failsafe is um, in and of itself, it was a pretty big movie for its time. It had a major sure. director in Sidney Lumet. Um, it starred Henry Fonda as the president and a, a fairly young Walter Matthau. Um, and it got buried. Like by the time it finally came out, people, I don't know if they just had enough of, you know, Cold War atomic bomb films or whatever, but Failsafe in its original run um, never got the attention that Strange Love got. Um, and it's odd that just the last sort of odd thing about it to me is that both both films ended up being released by the same studio, Columbia Pictures, even right. though they're largely the same film. Yeah. Well, I can, you know, I think that may also speak to Kubrick's instincts about turning the script around from a straightforward dramatic narrative into a, a black satire, because I think in some ways it might be easier for an audience to digest with that element of humor to it because they were living it. I mean, we, the three of us all, saw the sort of the end of the Cold War and grew up in it. And I think for people who, you know, are, are say millennials um, and didn't live through that era, that stress was incredible. That feeling that at any moment, whatever you were doing could end with a mushroom cloud at your, outside of your window and you being vaporized, you know? Well, and one thing... Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry, David. Oh, no, I just no, no, no. I just wanted to add what you were saying about it's funny the like the take how you can take a a plot basically and you can filter it either through basically comedy or tragedy, um, and that's something that uh, as a horror writer and also as a, a, a comic writer, um, 
quite often I'll have an idea for a plot and then it's like, well, if I play it this way, it's funny, but if I play it this way, it's horrific. And I always felt that way about the Three Stooges, in fact. It's like, I never found it funny. It's like, oh my God, he just hit him with a hammer in the head, you know? Um, so yeah, I guess it all depends on an audience's sensibility. Sorry, what were you going to say, David? Oh, oh, just about the the concept of the time after the Cuban missile crisis and how close they came and bomb shelters and everything else. All of that was hovering over it. I understand, which makes sense why Kubrick would want to do a film based on it. Um, well, what we want to do is, uh, sometimes we like to just look at how, you know, how we were first introduced to the film. Ira, I don't know if you have a story about how you first saw Dr. Strangelove and how it affected you. Well, it's really, yeah, it, it's probably not all that interesting. I mean, uh, I saw it on TV when I was a kid and, um, I even then thought it was hilarious, um, possibly because I wasn't as affected uh, by the whole um, Cold War scenario. So I, uh, I didn't feel that my life was potentially over at any second. So um, I, I could appreciate the comedy uh, elements more. If that makes sense. And Troy, do you have any memories of first seeing it? Well, like like Ira, I I probably saw it on TV, and I probably saw it on City TV's Great Movies. Um, and I'm not sure that I, I'm not sure that prior to watching it this week that I ever saw it from start to finish. Um, there was something something about the uh, segmented. Uh, scenes, you know, basically dividing the film into thirds that always allowed me an out, you know, <laughs> when a scene would end. Um, so I, I probably saw the whole thing, you know, in sections through my life, but never uh, until recently in, in one go. And it was generally those Peter Sellers scenes because, you know, I grew up with all of the Pink Panther films, the, you know, him playing Clouseau mm. and mm. films like uh, The Party um, and loving his sort of like his broad stuff. Uh, and then much later seeing being there. Um, so it was generally Peter Sellers that, that, that kept me in it. Um, but yeah, it was great finally seeing it in one sitting from beginning to end and the and appreciating that inner cutting and you know really appreciating seeing uh like james earl jones in his fame film debut um yeah how about you david um yeah and i i have a feeling that we might all be in sort of the same boat of just watching it on tv because we're not that old where we would right. have seen it back in 60 in 64 I would have been 2 years old which is a bit young like like imagine your parents saying oh let's bring our 2 year old Davy to um see Dr Strangelove I think he'll just absolutely love it and I might have loved it I may not remember it but <laughs> um but definitely in the 70s I would have seen it and probably on the same you know uh you know TV that gave us like four choices um all all bad but um one thing i wanted to know um ira because because you're sort of our resident expert on satires how do you think this fits in with with you know things like the lady killers and some of these other 
you know, you know, the great satires and some of the ones that you've even been a guest on our show. Like, what do you think? Um, well, you know, Troy and I were talking before we we started uh, recording about the tonal shifts in the film. Um, and they, they're really sort of brought out in the performances, how you have um, sort of the gonzo performances of, say, um, the Dr. Strangelove character or uh, George C. Scott's character, which is, you know, kind of over the top, overacting kind of performances. Um, but then you get the kind of understated deadpan performances of Sterling Hyden, for instance, or um, actually one of my favorite bits is the the Keenan Wynn scene. He's only in one scene of the film, um, but oh my God, he is so intense <laughs> and serious in that scene, right? Yeah. And the thing is that both styles work as comedy, right? I mean, when... Um, when Sterling Hyden starts talking about um, preserving America's precious bodily fluids, but with uh, that, actually that very famous um, Kubrick shot of uh, from beneath below where you're looking at him uh, kind of tower, his face towering over you. And he's so seriously, he has such seriousness of purpose. Um, it's hilarious. Right. Whereas George C. Scott, to use the other example, when George C. Scott is, you know, going on about, well, you know, so maybe 30 million people will <laughs> die. Maybe 50 million people yeah. will die. It depends on the breaks. Right? We might get our hair mussed. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and that is a different comedic approach, but one that also works. Um, in, in particular mm. with Scott's character, I think that, um, Kind of, kind of the purpose of it was to show just how um, childlike or even childish the people who are making these decisions of life or death over millions of people are, right? Um, kind of a commentary on on the whole military mindset. Now, there's something else that feeds into that, too, um, and I may be wandering a bit, so I, I hope you'll indulge me there. But there is an undercurrent of sexuality to the film that starts with the opening credit sequence mm -hmm. where you have um, a bomber plane that is being refueled in flight, right? Inseminated. I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, this, there's a very actually telling line in the film where Sterling Hyden, who is the general who sends the bomber planes to Russia, um, he's talking about, you know, um, fluoride sapping the, the precious bodily fluids out of people. And at one point, he actually says that I have denied women my essence, right? Which is a suggestion that he is impotent basically and that the whole attack on russia is um is him playing out his masculinity right uh and of course you've got you know slim pickens riding the bomb which is just obvious phallic symbolism so you've got this equation of um male impotence with uh military action which i i think is 
not always subtle, but is always there. Yeah, I think that Kubrick really nails that. And the thing is, you know, it's not even, we even get it in the title, right? It's, it's strange love. It's basically we're talking about kink, right? Because it's not even straightforward sex. It's all sort of filtered through a kinky filter. And, um, which is something that I've sort of always said about America. It's like, it's got an issue, a Freudian issue with, with phalluses, right? It's all about guns and missiles and rockets. Um, which, you know, like it doesn't take much to figure that one out. Right? <laughs> it's like, get comfortable with that folks, get, get comfortable with sex the way you are with, with, with weaponry and uh, warfare. And you'll, you'll be much happier. Um, Although I do think it does occur to me that, I mean, it's obvious to us now in 1964, it might've been revelatory. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, 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 yes. I mean, and again, we were talking a little bit about the genius of, of, of Kubrick. Like, yeah, he was far ahead of the curve, you know, and we were even saying like, perhaps part of his whole uh, being a master chess player uh, also works into his body of work. Because when you go film to film, you can't figure him out. Like you, you go, how is this the same filmmaker? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this, this guy who just did Spartacus and now he's doing like Lolita uh, and, and now he's doing this thing about the Cold War. <laughs> like, like what, what, I can't keep up. Um, speaking of that, speaking a little bit of his body of work, I'm going to put this to you, Ira, and then, you know, David and I can chime in a little bit if we like. But, um, yeah, where would you, personally, where does this fit among your favorite Kubrick films? Not necessarily the best, but in terms of what you like. It's, it's pretty high up there. It's pretty high up there. Now, one thing I will say, and I don't, know that this is a very sort of popular opinion but i think that kubrick is almost always a satirical filmmaker there are strains of comedy and there are strains of satirical comedy in just about everything that he does um so in that sense uh strange love is fits very comfortably with um with the rest of his films um in terms of you know favorites um 2001 is like one of my favorite films of all time so uh this will be just below that uh but i also think that uh lolita is actually a really interesting experimental uh, experiment in 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 uh adaptation uh, i'm not sure that uh nabokov's book is actually adaptable but he gives it a really good go um, and again, you know, talking about a film that isn't usually seen as, as, uh, satirical, but I think, um, I think definitely has that streak in it. Um, Clockwork Orange. Thank you. Um, Clockwork Orange, uh, is really social satire, um, and works very well too. Um, so, I mean, yeah, uh, it, it fits in with some of my favorite, uh, Kubrick films for sure. Yeah, there are even elements of The Shining that um, I always figured he's going for not laughs, but as you say, like satire. Um, You know, when you even that the the famous scene with Jack and Wendy on the stairs in The Shining, uh, you know, it's so over the top that um, one can't help but laugh at it, even if it's an uncomfortable laughter. there are just things that he does. And you know that it's always calculated with Kubrick. Like nothing happens by accident. Um, what about you, David? Do you have, uh, where would you put this among your favorite Kubrick films? 
Um, I would probably put it just like Ira second behind um, 2001. Now I did like, um, uh, I guess it's called full metal jacket, right? Or mm-hmm. heavy metal, yeah. ja- full, full metal, metal jacket, um, which was kind of interesting because I don't know what I was, what I ate at it, but at the end of the film, I, I got rather sick. Well, um, well, Ira has the emodium if you'd like some. Yeah, I might have to we'll, have. We'll some go back in time and get that to you. Because um, I remember seeing it with uh, my sister Pat, and I think there was a scene early on where they're pouring something over the graves, um, and maybe it was something that I I ate. But uh, <laughs> um, Doctor Strangelove is a very close second, but. You know, there could be arguments for it being even number one. Um, and certainly I think it's more, more of a satire than 2001 is. Um, so as a satirical film, I'm not sure if there are that many famous satires or even better than it. It's, it pretty much, you know, is the, the, one of the greatest satirical films of all time. Um, one thing I wanted to mention that Ira, that you were mentioning about is sometimes people are a bit steadfast or a bit, even Keenan Wynn's character is Bat Guano. He plays it pretty intense and pretty much straight up. And that whole scene about the Coca-Cola company. Um, <laughs> that is, that is one of my favorite lines in the film. I know everybody, uh, remembers the line, uh, gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Mm. Right. A very famous line. But one of my favorite lines is um, Keenan Wynn saying and and incredibly intensely. It's really into this this idea. Um, OK, I'm going to shoot off the lock of the cola machine. But if you don't talk to the president, you're going to have to answer to the Coca-Cola company. Right? <laughs> and it's just like. his his. <laughs> priorities like he says that as the world is about to be destroyed right it's just it's a perfect line perfectly delivered also slapstick because he sits he bends down to get the coins and the water of course the cola comes out and hits him in the face which is just perfect to end that scene yeah uh one thing i did want to mention before i forget is that this kind of thing you know peter sellers is a genius Kubrick just loved working with him. All the, a lot of these scenes were sort of almost off script or just things he was doing. This thing, this condition that he had, which just sounded like something made up about him, his, his not being able to control his arms or his legs. Yeah. Um, and there's this, I had never noticed this until I watched it like three times this week and prep for the, episode is that he's in the war room and he's doing that whole Nazi thing and he's he's Dr. Strangelove and he can't control his arm and if you look at the expression you're just concentrating on him but if you look at the expression of everyone else around Peter Bull as the Soviet ambassador is cracking up like he can't keep a straight face it's like Harvey Corman when you've got uh, yeah. um, uh, Burnett. whoever yeah. it is it's, yeah yeah just yeah. breaking him up like it's just hilarious well, yeah, here's like, the thing mm-hmm. about that. Um, as as has been mentioned, Kubrick was a perfectionist and he really planned every shot ahead of uh, actually shooting. 
But for Dr. Strangelove, he let Peter Sellers improvise on the set, which is actually extremely rare for him. And just mm. about everything Sellers did as Strangelove was not in the script. Um, and in fact, there is a, a story, um, how he got the, the black glove. Um, apparently, uh, Kubrick had a pair of black gloves that he wore on the set because Kubrick liked to move the lights to get exactly the right lighting on, uh, on a, in a shot. Um, and he wore these gloves because he, um, he moved around the lights. He wore these gloves as so as not to burn his hands. And, uh, um, Peter Sellers saw this and he's like, I can use that glove. Can I borrow one of your gloves for this scene? And that's where, um, uh, that's where Strangelove got the glove, right? But so I, I'm totally not surprised that people were cracking up on the set because, uh, Sellers was improvising madly. One of the things that, uh, struck me today and then just started to eat away at my brain was this thing that Kubrick seems to have going throughout his films, especially his sort of later films, um, maybe starting with, with strange love, but the whole idea of the failure of systems and the failure to communicate and what, what becomes of that. And we see it obviously in 2001, we definitely see it in, in strange love because that's the whole sort of uh, motivating factor in the film uh, is, is not being able to be in touch with the B-52s after uh, Jack D. Ripper um, <laughs> causes this mayhem. Um, and of course in the shining, we get uh, Jack destroys the CB radio at the overlook hotel. Uh, and so then they're, they're no longer able to, you know, communicate with the outside world. We also see Ripper's notebook that looks like something, uh, Jack Torrance might have written if he didn't have a typewriter. You know, you can imagine rather than the, what is it? The essence, uh, what, what, the yeah. 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 yeah there's purity of essence, of essence and peace on earth, the POEs. And with Jack, with, I just realized they're both Jacks, the Jack Ripper and a, a Jack Torrance and uh, with Torrance, it's the, uh, what is it all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy over and over again. Anyway, uh, I don't know if you have anything you want to add there. Ira, it's not actually a question, unfortunately, but um, uh, if you want to maybe turn it into like a jeopardy type thing, <laughs> if you have anything to add on there, feel free. Oh, I think there are, there are details that we can, you know, make connections to, uh, to various Kubrick films. I think, Kubrick had a very specific vision and he keeps coming back to, um, you know, specific visuals over and over again. Yeah. There's also some great line, like a few of the lines, like, and it's all satire and it's all really dark and understated and complete. But like when, when, um, he says, it looks like General Ripper exceeded his authority. <laughs> I was thinking, that's stunning. And, and just the look of um, the president. You know, he's just sort of thinking, who the hell am I talking to? It's just brilliant. You know, the, the, these little lines of George C. Scott, like the human element has failed us here. <laughs> yeah. Um uh, yeah, as you said, you can't fight in the war room and all that stuff. What was one of the things I found fascinating was Dr. Strangelove, his first line that he, the first time he speaks is about 51 minutes. 
into the film. I actually tell you, it was 51 minutes and 10 seconds in a 95 minute film is the first time he speaks a lie. They kept him right till the end and it was just a perfect added oomph. You know, he's sort of like that person who comes in the third act and just adds more invigoration and adds more energy to the movie. Yeah. And, and, you know, Strange Love, this is another thing too that I love about this film and, you know, as satirists, which we've all sort of delved in that area, um, when you get these sort of Dickensian names, these names that are hilarious in themselves, but also sort of like seem to uh, tip you off to the characters. So you get like Mandrake and Muffley. I love Muffley. Oh, it reminds off. me, Yeah, Kiss Off. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Dimitri Kiss Off. But even yes. like, because as kids, and I guess it came from the 60s, but I remember as the 70s, you would say something like, oh, he muffed it up, you know? <laughs> Um, and so you get like a Merkin Muffley is <laughs> hilarious. Yeah. And I was sort of in, in, in watching it a Kong. number of times. Yeah. Yes. Kong, of course. Uh, 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 I was taken more with uh, Tracy Reed as Miss Scott, mm-hmm. uh, as the secretary who is, wants to be, possibly become Mrs. Buck Turgidson. Um, and just that whole phone conversation where he's off in the distance. You don't even see where he is. And she keeps trying to communicate and hold the person. It's just done so well. Yeah. And even, you know, a clearly strange love is like a veiled uh, Werner von Braun. But the, the fact that he comes from Germany and he's changed his name from, to strange love, but basically it's just a translation, a German translation, his actual name, whatever strange love is, something Lieb. Yeah. Anyway, any any thoughts on the naming there, Ira? I guess, now, is it true that most of that was the work of um, Perry um, Southern. Southern? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, as uh, there was a, a making of documentary uh, on the uh, DVD that I watched the film on recently. And uh, one of the things they pointed out was that it was not difficult to figure out what came from Kubrick and what came from Terry Southern. So just to use the title, Dr. Strangelove came from Terry Southern. How I Stopped Worrying and Learned to Love the Bomb came from Kubrick. (laughs) And it tells you all you need to know about the different approaches. Um, But, uh, you know, again, I'll be, this is part of the Kubrick's brilliance, right? Mm. He wants to write a comedy. He doesn't quite know how to get the tone right. So he gets one of the the best writers of comedy at the time, Terry Southern, to come in to punch up the script. And he allows one of the best performers of comedy of the time, um, Peter Sellers, uh, to improvise, right? So you've got these things going that, um, that really add to the depth of the comedy. Uh, and mm. I'll also say, because David brought this up, um, the film is about 90 minutes long. Um, but it's so full. There's so much going on. It is a Kubrick film in the sense that every shot counts. There is mm-hmm. absolutely no fat on it whatsoever. Yeah, even the ending where they're going through all of these. And the, some of the military people at the time were thinking, okay, how do they know all this stuff? Because they're going through everything you have to do to drop the bomb. That was one of the two things that I mentioned to you guys earlier that I had a bit of a question about the first one was because i had actually find years ago like 20 30 years ago even when i was watching the film i was thinking 
it, it just seemed a bit odd near the end because they said they were 10 miles out. And considering how fast these planes, these bombers fly, if you're going like a car at 60 miles per hour, as an example, then you go 60 miles an hour, which is one mile a minute. If you're going 600, you're doing 10 miles every minute. And when they said they were 10 miles out, I thought, well, they're going to be there in about a minute or two. Four minutes later, they're eight miles out. And then so and then it becomes fat. Like if you actually follow, it would have been that it would have been that complicated for them to actually have figured all that stuff out and put a proper number on it because the math didn't add up. Um, that was just one of two concerns. The other one was just the very ending where they were just talking about go, going to um, underground mine shafts and going deep enough and they would have to get food there. They'd have 10 women for every man and they would decide that the military and the politicians would be saved and they're working out all of this stuff but the bombs are being dropped how much time does it take to eventually get these mine shafts set up for human habitation select the people and get them down there so that part i didn't quite understand well i do think that you know you have to suspend your disbelief for a lot of stuff like that but the one thing i will say is that the ending although i i like it a lot um was not the original ending of the film the film was supposed to end with a pie fight in the uh war room and um this is actually set up very early in the film where um when uh the mm. russian ambassador is first introduced He's introduced at this very long table with a lot of food on it, including a lot of pies, right? So, I mean, that was there. And they actually, like, my original thinking was, or my original, um, uh, originally I thought I had heard somewhere that the reason that they didn't use the pie scene in the end was because... Uh, there was a line in the pie scene where somebody goes, oh, my God, the president has been hit, presumably oh, right. with a pie, which tends not to be funny after JFK is assassinated, right? Mm. Um, but actually, I was disabused of that notion by the documentary. Apparently, um, the studio never liked the pie fight scene as, a, as an ultimate scene in the film. They gave Kubrick one chance to shoot it. Uh, he shot it once, and the problem was all of the actors were cracking up. They were just having too much of a good time, and they were having too much fun, um, and he couldn't use that take. So the actual ending of the film that we get um, was kind of a, a last-minute thing that's put together. Um, but, you know, for me, when uh, I think it's um, uh, General Turgidson who goes, you know, uh, what we can't have is a mine shaft gap, right? Mm. <laughs> and it totally, it brilliantly encapsulates all of the military thinking that the movie is right. making fun of, right? Yeah. So it, it does work very well for yeah. me. And for, uh, what I was thinking, David, was that planning that they're discussing is all a part of the denial that goes hand in hand with thinking that you can survive a nuclear war. Um, you remember, this is the same mindset that told school children that, you know, you, like you see the mushroom cloud, you stop, drop and roll and go under your desk and you'll be fine. You know, um, so for me, I, I thought that was great. And it was actually it's part of the satire, even 
that, you know, and they're like, yeah, that'll be great. And we're sort of like, now that you've told us about the women, we're really going to sign off on this, like bring on the bomb. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I was okay with that. Well, some of the stuff that, that is so cool, uh, uh, guys is that they played also straight up, which is what satire does. Well, like the fact that they did all that stuff, that is all the stuff that a military person would do when uh, Kong received, when they received the order and Kong has to go back and take a look at it. Then he says, contact them and actually see you contact the base and see if you can confirm it with someone on the phone. And then they do that. It reminds me a bit of war games at the very beginning where they had this scenario where are they actually going to, pull the trigger whether it's a test or not or in the movie crimson tide where it's always a question of if you're going to send off something you want to know you want that confirmation because you don't want to be that person that starts world war three well that's that's interesting because of course the military absolutely had nothing to do with the making of the film they the the air force the american air force absolutely refused to do anything to help, uh, to help make the film. And in fact, the interior of the plane, the cockpit of the plane and all of the, the, the interior, um, was actually, actually developed because of one photograph. I think it was in Time magazine that was of the forward part of the cockpit of an actual B-52. What Kubrick did was he told his set designers, okay, take that and extrapolate it to the rest of the, 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 the plane, right? And in fact, the whole sequence that they go through, pressing all the buttons and everybody sort of talking about what they're doing and, and agreeing to doing it and stuff, um, the Air Force said, no, that's not the way it works. Don't, don't be getting any science lessons from this movie. Right. And supposedly, uh, I guess internally, the Air Force freaked out when they did see the film and they're like, how did they get this detail right? Yeah. You know, they, they assumed that somehow they had insiders sending them images, but they didn't. Well, one other thing I, I just wanted to bring up because, um, Back when I was an undergrad and we, we looked at this film, um, my professor actually brought this to my attention. Um, it's still the only film that I know of, and there may, there may actually be other examples, but it's the only one that I know of that takes place in three different uh, locations where none of the characters in any of the locations interact with any of the other characters in the other oh. locations. Right. Right. You've got the Pentagon. You've got uh, the, the the war room at the Pentagon. You've got the um, plane um, and you've got Burfelson Air Force Base. Um, and it's incredible that even though, you know, the characters don't interact, um, their actions affect what the people in the other locations are doing. Um, yeah. And that's really the and, way life works. You yes. Know, you, you get those interconnections, but it's not always uh, the way we would do it dramatically, you know, but like say something like a parcel arriving, you may not see the guy who delivers the parcel, but he's got a whole backstory and then you get the parcel, you know, um, there's all these sort of interconnections that aren't actually uh, people dealing with one another. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no, it's brilliant that way. Because as even as you started, I thought, well, maybe it's a little like an Altman film, but Altman characters tend to inter mm. interact. So you're right. Yeah, it's it's it is uh, to be noted for sure. Yeah, and who keeps this huge gun in a golf bag? <laughs> a man named Jack the Ripper does. Yeah. <laughs> because that's oh, just weird and he keeps some of the ammo actually in the side thing where you keep golf balls yeah he's got these things now what i wondered was the whole thing about the fluoride now that's a conspiracy theory that i'd heard growing up and i thought Mm. so did that conspiracy theory come from the film or is it probably knowing kubrick it's something that he took that he had actually heard that there are people talking about this fluoride stuff um being well it's not necessarily an either or situation yeah right it might have been, you know, nascent in the culture and then it appears in the movie, which disseminates it to a whole new group of people, right? Right. Yeah. And, and I'm amazed. It sounds like today, doesn't it? Troy, yeah. like, like the right. kinds of things that people say about what, what the vaccines cause and everything else just sounds like the same thing. Yeah. Well, if you ever see the, um, I'll put in air quotes documentary room 217. Um, it's, it's an interesting view because, you know, they, they basically have all of these conspiracy theories based on, um, the shining. Um, you know, none of which, you know, certainly I ever heard Kubrick espouse, but, um, you know, it's a, certainly a fascinating watch. So like Ira said, though, it's like, you know, it's hard to tell which came first, the chicken or the egg with, some of these ideas. Yeah. The quote uh, is, do you realize that fluoridation is the most monstrously conceived and dangerous communist plots plot we have ever faced? Come on. Yeah. What well, is maybe not. I do not deny them. I do not deny them. My essence. Is that the quote? Yeah. Well, Just, the quote yeah. here is women sense my power and they <laughs> seek the life essence. I do not avoid women, Mandrake, but I do deny them my essence. Now that's the scene, that, that whole scene where he's actually sitting on the couch next to him, puts his arm around <laughs> yeah, yeah. the brigadier and, and he's sort of like, and, the, and he seems so uncomfortable in that. It's just a wonderful scene. Yeah. If we're not careful, we're all going to have to answer to the Coca-Cola company. <laughs> um, well, and, and you know, this just reminds me of just how much detail is in the film and, and so much makes it so worth uh, multiple screenings, like watching it many times. Um, for instance, uh, at least three or four times there are shots where there is a uh, a sign or a poster or something mm-hmm. that says peace is our profession. Yeah. Right. Yes. And especially when the uh, Air Force base is being um, uh, attacked from outside. Right. And so you've got pieces are profession <laughs> yeah. very clearly there yeah, while yeah. gunfire is going back and forth. Right. Yeah. You may um, not be very good at your job. <laughs> Or and I actually I got I must have seen the movie like a dozen times and I didn't know until I actually saw it on the DVD um, that the woman in General Turgenson's um, uh, bedroom the, the his, his secretary oh, yeah. yeah Miss Scott yeah 
Miscott was the Playboy playmate that uh, Colonel Kong Kong was looking at in the first time we see him on screen. Uh, I did not know that was the same woman. Um, yeah, me neither. Me neither. Yeah, Miss Foreign Affair. Could you see it just over over her body that there's this magazine with Miss Foreign Affairs? <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And another sort of takeaway for me was, uh, and involves Turgenson as well, is, uh, you know, when he's in the war room, there's a binder where the spine faces the camera and it, uh, I forget the full title of it, but it has Megadeth on it. And I was like, that's right. Megadeth. Is this like, that must be the first, um, sort of pop culture getting it out there. Cause maybe it existed within the military culture. I don't know, but, um, that well, must be where the, where the, the band got it. That speech where he talks about, you know, 30 million or maybe 40 million dead or whatever, that speech was actually taken from a Rand, uh, corporation, um, position paper. Wow. He is uh, like, he's spouting, satirically spouting, um, what was actually being studied at the time. And yes, the Rand corporation actually came up with the term Megadeth. Wow. But you're right. The film is the first one that popularizes it. I live, I'm actually not going to say the city, I probably have in the past, but I live north of Toronto and we have, it's not actually a Diefenbunker, but it's a type of Diefenbunker that was intended for um, uh, Toronto municipal workers to come to once the bomb hit. Um, it's a lead line building. And in the basement of it, um, they have, you know, one of those plexiglass maps, uh, boards, and on it, it has every major Canadian city listed down one side and the number of, doesn't say mega deaths, but just the number of deaths within each of these major Canadian cities. It's chilling. Mm-hmm. And that's the point. That's the point of the satire. It's like, <laughs> they're very calmly talking about massive amounts of death, tens of millions mm-hmm. of people dying. And to the Rand Corporation and the politicians who are reading those studies, it's just numbers. It, yeah. It's, you know, meaningless in, in many ways. Just getting your hair must. Yeah. Exactly. And what is acceptable and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the things that I liked, um, the, we're almost ready to go to the, um, uh, Dreamcast and Schrodinger's cast, but the, the, the whole scene, like George C. Scott's brilliant. And I loved him in Patton. He won an Oscar for Patton, but Patton's one of my favorite films. It's just such a standout performance in it. And he's pretty amazing in this. So when he's, when he's, um, quoting, um, uh, the, um, general that sent them, sent the bombs in and he's, Ripper. yeah, Ripper. Yeah. And he says, so let's get going. There's no other choice. So God willing, we will prevail in peace and freedom from fear and in true health through the purity and essence of our natural fluids. God bless you all. And that's, I think, just, yeah, you know that this guy has definitely gone a bit too far, I think. (laughs) Just a tad. Just a little as a genre yeah. guy, I also have to do a tip of the hat to George C. Scott for Exorcist Three and The Changeling, two of my favorite <laughs> horror films of sort of a certain era. Do you want me to hit you quickly with the Beatlesisms, David? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All righty. So definitely there are connections to Peter Sellers through 
the Beatles. John Lennon and the other Beatles were huge fans of the Goons, the British comedy troupe that Peter Sellers had been in. Uh, Ringo starred with Peter Sellers in The Magic Christian uh, and Candy, both films based on novels by Terry Southern. And in Peter Jackson's Get Back documentary, we see Peter Sellers dropping by Twickenham Studios and hanging out with the Beatles. And I, I learned one just before we started recording, and that is... In 1967, some of the flying footage from Dr. Strangelove was reused in the Beatles' Magical Mystery Tour. Supposedly, the use of the footage prompted Kubrick to call editor Roy Benson to complain, because I guess he actually didn't give his permission for that. Um, and flying footage from The Shining was used at the end of Blade Runner in 1982, just connecting that, those dots. And there you go. That's, that's your Beatleism for today. <laughs> Um, Ira, do you have anything uh, before we get to the dream casting? Sometimes we like to ask our guests if there's anything that you may have picked up or not been aware of with Doctor Strange Love that you may have picked up in the last, say, five or ten years that might have been surprised you or something that you just weren't aware of. Uh, well, I think I've I've talked a little bit about some of the the details that that came out in this particular viewing. Um, like I say, there's there's so much going on all of the time mm. that it's it's uh, it's easy to find new things no matter how many times you've seen the film. It's a film that stands up to repeated viewing. Absolutely. Uh, uh, Troy, did we want to do our dream casting in Schrodinger's cast? Dream casting. Yeah. Dream casting, baby. Now we're doing a bit of a uh, a condensed version today. Is that right, David? Yeah, we're looking at just Peter Sellers because there's this long history of actors, and it's almost like a feather in your cat. Like like it's something where you play multiple roles, and there's even something on on Wikipedia or some site I found that lists you. All you have to do is just Google actors or actresses that have played multiple roles and there are so many over time there's some famous ones but we thought peter sellers was in three roles why don't we find someone to replace peters even though he's irreplaceable sure yeah and exactly. do that with with the the dream cast and uh, children's cast sure do we want ira to lead off as our as our guest i'm ready i can do this all right you can do it ira i can do it i am strong yeah. Um, you have the essence among you with your bodily or, fluids. <laughs> and I'm willing to share it, which okay, all right. as soon as it comes out, it sounds wrong. Oh, uh, we're all preverts anyway. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so uh, for my dream, I had a feeling that somebody else would take the obvious one. And, and you have, I'm not going to spoil that. Uh, for my dream, uh, I would suggest... Jimmy Stewart. Oh. Okay. He um, could obviously play the uh, president very well. Um, I think when you look at some of his work with um, uh, Alfred Hitchcock, he could get the craziness of um, of Strange Love, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know if he could do the British accent of the third part, but um, he certainly has the range. Um, I think he could have done it uh, very well. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I'm a big Stewart fan, so I'll 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 give him give it a shot with with Jimmy. Shall I give you mine, David? Sure. Okay. Well, uh, I went with somebody who had a has a background in uh, sketch comedy, as uh, Peter Sellers did, um, and somebody who I quite like his work recently, and that's Bill Hader. Um, mm. And I thought, you know, he could definitely get into different characters and I would love to see him do strange love for sure. And I could also imagine him doing muffly. Um, you know, don't know if the British accent would fly either with, with um, Mandrake, but I'm going with Bill Hader for my, my dream cast. Okay. So we've got Bill Hader and I have Sir Alec Guinness, uh, who yeah. has been known for playing the occasional multiple, um, characters in the film and Excellent. i think he would just be uh, perfect and that of that age even like around 64 he would have been about the right age to sure even play that role yeah um so um ira do you have like an outside a very odd and i do appreciate what your your choice are i think this is but peter sellers is peter sellers and oh, yeah. there's no i mean you know if you think of some of the great comedians that have been around for like Robin Williams and some of the roles that he can play serious and also play funny and Sasha Baron Cohen. And so there've been just so many great actors and uh, uh, comedians uh, that you can almost pick anyone. Um, I like these choices and Bill Hader probably has the most of those three, the most comic chops. Um, I, I'm actually yeah, go ahead. sorry. I, I was about to change my mind, but I, I'm, I'm doing bad typos on my phone here. Um, <laughs> I just realized who I should have picked, even though I do love Bill Hader and I will stick to it. But now that I think about it, um, Taika Waititi would also have been Ooh, excellent okay. as uh, in, in the three different roles and hilarious. Um, anyway. Um, yeah. So if Bill is sick, if he breaks his leg as supposedly Peter Sellers did or didn't on the set, um, you know, maybe he can come in for a role. I've actually, uh, I've actually seen photos of Sellers with his leg. With a cast. cast. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I had originally thought, sorry for the digression. It's okay. I had originally thought Sellers was supposed to play, um, uh, Major Kong as well. Um, and I had originally thought that he didn't because he, um, he couldn't master the Texan accent. Right. Um, but I was wrong. Apparently what happened was that there was a scene that they were shooting where he, uh, Major Kong, um, jumps from the cockpit into the bomb bay and Sellers broke his leg doing that stunt. Um, and Kubrick couldn't, you know, wait for three weeks or however long it took him to, um, to heal, so he had to recast the part. That's how Slim Pickens got uh, the role. And I don't know. Uh, I, I heard a variation of that story. Don't know if it's true or not. And I, but mm -hmm. it, it was told on the Criterion Collection, where um, supposedly he and Kubrick were having a heated discussion while he was on the bomb, while he was sitting on the bomb, mm -hmm. and was quite animated and fell off of it. <laughs> Now, I don't know if that's true or not, right? I'm just telling you what I heard. Um, I could use the Trumpian phrase, people are saying. Anyway, um, yes. Okay, so where are we at, David? We're going on to Schrodinger's cast? 
Yeah, and I guess we'll start with uh, Ira first, since I guess we started with him. Um, well, he's our yeah. guest. He's he's an honored guest too. So <laughs> five times. Yeah. Um, you have to say baby afterwards. Five times, baby. <laughs> That's staying power. Um. Okay, this might seem like an odd choice. Uh, but that should. The whole point, I suppose. Um, I was thinking Peter Lorre. Now, the thing about um, the thing about Strange Love is he is one creepy dude. And he really is. <laughs> when you strip him of the comedy, yeah. Uh, yeah. he is like, Egh. yeah. Um, and Peter Lorre can totally nail that. <laughs> yes. Uh, I also think that Peter Lorre is uh, very underrated as an actor. I think mm-hmm. that he could, uh, he's got kind of a silky smooth side that uh, people don't give him credit for. Mm. Um, so he could certainly have finessed the president. Um, again, I don't know if he could do the British accent, uh, especially because of his pronounced German accent. So not sure how he would fare as Mandrake, but um, yeah, I think it would work. I think he could make it work. That's a great choice. Oh, well, yeah. um, as you may or may not know that with uh, Schrodinger's cast, um, I, over the last year or so, have been using my uh, random name generator 9000 uh, software to uh, come up with my candidates for Schrodinger's cast. So um, for Mandrake, President Mifley, and Strange Love, the random name generator 9000 gave me Jane Mansfield. Wow. Yeah, without that, that I think I've said this before, without that random name generator, you may never have in a thousand years picked Jane Mansfield as the person yeah. <laughs> that you would have. Nope. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. Unless I was like having a seizure or starting a stroke or something. Yeah. Yeah. And no offense, of course, against Jane, Jane Mansfield. No, you no. just don't think. No. But that's no. about as outside the box as you can get. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it certainly isn't stereotyping. But you can see the box from your backyard. But anyway, sorry. Um, but um, I can see Russia from my house. But one thing I was thinking of originally was my first choice was Jim Carrey originally as someone that could play a lot of roles and has enough for rubber basins and looks different in different roles. And then I was thinking Mike Myers because he's done did that with Austin Powers. He played several different uh, characters in that, but I finally settled on someone that's completely out there, which is Tom Cruise, who, and I don't want to spoil uh, Tropic Thunder, but which is, I think, one of the more underrated comedies of the last 20 years. Uh, it's quite brilliant. But it wasn't until the credits at the end of the film that I realized that there was a certain per- character in that film played by Tom Cruise. Um, and it was kind of stunning. Like I just said, how the hell that's Tom Cruise. <laughs> um, and he could do the, the character, I think, you know, dressed up and with whatever they've done with him, I think Tom Cruise would be, would work well for that. Well, I think that might be our Dr. Strange love episode. Yeah. And uh, with any luck, we will meet again. So thanks <laughs> to our special guest. Oh, well done, Troy. Well done. <laughs> I almost can hear Vera Lynn's I, voice. I that. considered singing it, but I thought I better not. 
I'll meet again. Okay, so thanks. Thank you, Ira. Yeah, thanks very for, much, uh, IRS. Uh, always a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Okay, everybody, please remember to catch us on uh, all of our socials. Uh, try your favorite podcast provider. Uh, some of them are coming and going these days, so it's hard to keep track, but we are definitely on Spotify. And uh, you can go to uh, our website, which is 2numeric2of.ca. And Facebook, yes, we're there. We like to go there and play and have comments and share silly things and welcome your feedback. So please check us out on Facebook at Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi and do tell a friend, like, and subscribe and all of those things. I am David Clink. And I am Troy Harkin. See you all for our next episode of Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi. The Office of Civil Defense has issued the following message. This is an attack warning. Repeat, this is an attack warning. Attack warning means that an actual attack against this country has been detected and that protective action should be taken. This is an emergency action notification. All broadcast stations shall broadcast emergency action notification message number two, red card. This station has interrupted its regular program at the request of the United States government to participate in the emergency broadcast system. During this period, some stations will stay on the air as part of the emergency broadcast system. Those stations will broadcast news and information for the general public in the assigned areas. You should now tune your radio dial until you hear a station which is broadcasting news and information for your area. Until further notice, this station will not be broadcasting news and information for your area. I repeat, this station will not be broadcasting news and information for your area until further notice. You should now tune your radio dial until you hear a station which is broadcasting news and information for your area.